Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum, and with us tonight is a man who would never secretly fund a haunted convent, Mr. Joseph Wren. Joe, what are we up to tonight? Come, children, sit around the fire with me as we talk about this wonderful thing called folk horror, which I thought we covered in its entirety for Eyes of Fire, uh, but it seems like you have more to say, Lucas. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, uh, which is a really generic way of me saying, <laughs> what the fuck have you done to me tonight? And good evening to you, all of you gruesome people. So fans of our show will already know that I am an enthusiast of folk horror. For my money, I think it's the subgenre of horror with the most interesting and symbolically loaded things of them all going on. I also think that if you scratch the surface of folk horror, you end up finding the very DNA of all modern horror media. One of mankind's oldest professions and pastimes is storytelling, and in the dark of winter, few things are quite so satisfying as a good ghost story. Another one of my favorite things about folk horror is how it works on every continent. This subgenre feels no regard for national borders, and the rough template of the genre can work with almost any folklore or culture. But there are always the corners of that subgenre that are, well, a little too abstract for the mainstream. While these films feel like perfect fodder for the Fright Lab, they aren't likely to get a hell of a lot of mainstream play. I've mentioned this before, but there used to be a theater in St. Louis, the Tivoli, that played a lot of indie flicks, along with this great midnight movie series. So, you know, if you wanted to see Zardoz or uh, like Beyond the Black Rainbow, they would do stuff like that. And the subject of tonight's film, the Mariano Baino 1994 uh, epic, I guess, entitled Dark Waters, would be almost too weird to play even at a midnight cult movie showing somewhere like the Tivoli. But it's in those, well, murky waters that we end up finding a shocking amount of fascinating questions and ephemera. For those who are blind shall see the true face of the beast and forever suffer it in their soul. Joe, do you remember talking to me in one episode about the quote-unquote worst movie ever made, Troll 2? That was in the beginning of the podcast, and I will never forget it because I can't wait to have that conversation. Eventually, we're going to talk about what is good, what is bad, and really try to break down some of the worst films of all time. And are they really as bad as some of the greatest films of all time? Troll 2 is an interesting, absurd, surreal masterpiece. When you get past the idea that it's supposed to be a normal film. Yeah, and you made a really interesting point about that. I think it was in our Suspiria episode, how there's this tendency in Italian horror cinema to be less about the cerebral input and more about the emotional and psychological impact of stuff. And Dark Waters might be the perfect carrier wave to talk about weird niche subjects without pausing to be even remotely coherent. This film is a perfect example of what David Lynch meant when he said, I don't know why people expect art to make sense. They accept the fact 
that life doesn't make sense. Before we can get into the questions I think this movie kind of poses, we need to talk about the plot of this absolutely bonkers little gem. Do not expect all of this to be a straight line, but we will do what we can to not drive completely off the edge. Our protagonist, Elizabeth, is off to a convent on an island in an unspecified European country. We don't exactly know where, but it's presumed to be somewhere in Central or Eastern Europe, maybe. And despite a raging storm, Elizabeth arrives at the convent and drops immediately into business. You see, Elizabeth's father has died recently, and our protagonist has also recently learned that her father had been quietly funding this little convent for years. Elizabeth wants answers as to why. This convent is, to say the very least, highly unusual. Their rituals are strange. The nuns are a little standoffish, or a lot standoffish, and the non-nun inhabitants of this island are straight from Lovecraft's central casting. Soon enough, Elizabeth's own dark history is revealed, and she will be in conflict with the ominous powers and corrupt inhabitants of the island. How do you solve a problem like Maria? Wow, that was a weird, weird choice to make there. <laughs> well done, sir. Now, I have done what I can to make a coherent plot synopsis for this movie, but let's be blunt here. That doesn't do this film justice or explain very much at all. This movie borrows from the overall vibe and rough plot of H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth, kind of, and thus it also kind of smacks of the Charles Band film Dagon, which, if you've never seen, go watch it, it's great. And while I am a fan of that version of Dagon, I think this is a slightly better film overall, if, if only in terms of filmmaking. That's purely a matter of taste, of course, but I think this movie just leans entirely more into strangeness than anything else. Is Lovecraft the easiest author to borrow from because no one has the guts to just make a Lovecraft story into a film? Because nobody can really get it right. We all have assumptions. People have done drawings, paintings. We've read those stories. There's a lot of fiction that H.P. Lovecraft wrote that some of it's not so great, but a lot of what that man did has led to some of the greatest films, stories, records of all time, as far as really disturbing imagery and shocking ideas that put you in the depths of your mind and really make you think about horror as something that is real. But nobody wants to just do it verbatim. You're always borrowing from Lovecraft when you make something like this film. You know, I've said before on the show that I don't want to tread too far into uh, into into the Lovecraft debate. It is something that one of these days I am going to write about, but uh, not right now. I have so many other movies I want to talk about, so many other ideas. I think part of the issue with Lovecraft from a like filmmaking perspective is that so much of his writing relies on not saying like. You know, I was saying earlier uh, earlier today before we started recording how I re recently rewatched uh, The Color Out of Space. And one of the things I like about that is it, the movie does a really good job of being really freaky and terrifying and disgusting. 
but in the original text, it's not even really like the text basically says, OK, so this thing invades from outer space and it's kind of like a color, even though that's not precisely it. And the color it's kind of like is like a color you've never seen. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know, it's it's the Tommy was so I've never said it was dark comedy. It, it is dark comedy. What what the fuck kind of explanation is that? It's totally ridiculous. <laughs> but I also think that Lovecraft is one of those one of those writers uh, who's easy to borrow from in a sense because he had such a good sense of why the Mego are terrifying. But at the same time, you can remove it from its context and it's still kind of scary. Like I know a lot of people love uh, In the Mouth of Madness, uh, John Carpenter, which is a movie I really enjoy. And it's kind of like quasi Lovecraftian. It's kind of quasi cosmic horror, but it never like, yeah, it cracks a couple of jokes kind of at Lovecraft's expense, but it never, uh, never fully says. And by the way, this creature is Azagtoth or whatever. I think Lovecraft is easy to borrow from, but hard to do correctly is what it comes down to. So while all of that kind of explains why uh, I enjoy Dark Waters, you know, that doesn't really make it like a Fright Lab joint. So why are we talking about this? Well, this movie's fixation on evil nuns got me thinking about convents in general. As someone who lives in a historically Catholic city, I suddenly found myself curious about haunted convents, the world of nuns, and how we just don't seem to talk about the prevalence of Catholic, well, everything in horror and i can hear you all now lucas you self-indulgent little freak this is just an excuse for you to review and talk about dark waters isn't it do you need an excuse yes yes this is an excuse for me to do that and i refuse <laughs> to apologize but you are now along for the ride right so i recommend a nice cold beverage and settle in we're gonna get weird tonight Dark Waters is in a particular arena that I don't see often. It's a straight-up folk horror in many regards, but it leans way more heavily into the gothic side of that subgenre. In some of our previous episodes, we've talked about folk horror at some length, but we don't ever really talk about that as like a continuum of concepts. Modern folk horror has evolved. It can be very modern in its sensibility. For instance, with films like the 2021 Thai folk horror faux documentary, The Medium. But when you look at the original quote-unquote unholy trinity of the genre, you see elements of the gothic tradition in Witchfinder General. And for those of you who haven't seen it, I really strongly recommend you add Witchfinder General to your list. It has Vincent Price at his most villainous, and it leans on man's inhumanity and superstition really effectively. Dark Waters is certainly about isolation, strange rituals, surreal atmospheres, man's inhumanity and superstition. It does it really effectively. The elements of The Shadow Over Innsmouth from Lovecraft are also hard to ignore, but it's the part that Lovecraft's work kind of like pop culturally just ignores. Dark Waters is not really about tentacles and oceans and mad historians. It's more about an old way of life, barely surviving in isolation. It's about subversions only found outside of, you know, quote unquote, proper society. Dark Waters is ultimately about secrets and how some secrets are better left alone and not 
you know, ever seen. If you are interested in the gothic side of this story, uh, I have a link in our show notes from Father, Son, and Holy Gore that delves into the subject. And I think you should check out that article. But it also feels, to me anyway, a lot like John Carpenter's The Prince of Darkness. Its use of the supernatural and perverted religious imagery just makes things feel more and more unstable as the story goes along. It doesn't really make sense, but it doesn't need to make sense. Something I asked myself during the rewatch of this movie was, why is folk horror always so fucking weird? And the only answer I can rightly come to is that sometimes a weird thing happens. And it's scary because it's so weird and unexpected. And for me, that almost feels like a cop-out, right? Not to spend another episode ranting about modern films and modern filmmaking, but I think there's been a trend in like the last decade or so in terms of mainstream cinema that is just antithetical to good horror, I think. More and more, I find major studios want a tidy, nice story. I feel like they don't want too many cliffhangers or stories with big, ambiguous endings. And while I am a person who likes a good, tight storyline, I wonder if that sort of is damaging to stories that aren't as clear-cut. Uh, Joe, did you see the recent horror movie Barbarian? It was on HBO. I have that on my list. There is so much good entertainment right now. The Last of Us, everybody tells me it's not the video game. Go watch it. I saw Barbarian. I'm going to get to it. it. It's a good movie. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. It's a hard watch, but it has some spaces that are just kind of like unexplained. And I think those spaces are where a lot of the actual horror ends up residing. While Barbarian and Prince of Darkness are wildly different films in terms of subject matter or like themes or just like cinematic approach, they share this sort of ambiguity. In the case of Dark Waters, not having an explanation gives room for both mystery and fear. You know, you brought up Lovecraft earlier, and one of the things I love about Lovecraft is, again, he might allude to a thing, but he never directly says the thing, and it's in that negative space. That's that's where the horror is. It's, it's the horror of the unknown, and you can't explain the unknown and maintain the horror of the unknown, so you leave it alone. And all of the stuff about Barbarian outside of like the gross outs and all of that that are in it because people who've seen the movie know Barbarian's kind of gross in a couple of spots. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't squirm easily when I watch horror movies, but there was a few spots that made me go, oh, no. So, oh, so oh. what kind of gore are we talking about here? Are we talking about raw? Um, the gore in uh, Barbarian's honestly pretty minimal, but the gross outs in it aren't necessarily gory. They're just gross. <laughs> Back, you eight-legged freaks. Oh, she's a little swollen. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but rather like Suspiria, like Dark Waters is not a really cerebral film. And one of the ways that, that it ends up working is through its visuals. The island that this film is set upon is honestly like beautiful in this feral, bleak sort of way. The sight of all of these nuns all wearing like the same habits, the same garments could be like numbing or just homogenizing, but they're oftentimes engaged in like wild acts of self-flagellation or attacking people with like really weird weapons or this one scene, they're all standing around with wielding burning crucifixes and it's just so upsetting. 
Um, as a note about that burning cross thing, uh, I found that to be really genuinely jarring. As an American, seeing burning crosses has a strange and strong connotation for the Ku Klux Klan and like just kind of American style racism in general. Um, I haven't found any example of burning crosses in Italy sharing that same sort of connotation. It might be hard for some of us to separate that, but in the case of Dark Waters, I think it's just mostly to be scary and subversive. So like I said a moment ago, it's it's just not a cerebral horror film. In the plot synopsis earlier, I pointed out that the film appears to take place in an unnamed Eastern European country. Uh, for the record, it was filmed in Ukraine, and many of the smaller roles were filled by Russian and Ukrainian actors. Uh, there was an interesting choice made to use actors who actually didn't speak any English, despite their dialogue being in English. That makes the conversations between the actors on screen feel even more like disjointed and odd. Uh, you find that seems to happen quite a bit with Italian cinema for some reason. While it's never said that the film takes place in Ukraine, I started wondering about this convent. It's never stated that the nuns are practicing Roman Catholicism, but that's kind of like the aesthetic of their garb. But if that's the case, why is there such an old Roman Catholic convent in Ukraine? I did some quick digging, and it appears that only about 1% of Ukrainians are Roman Catholic. Okay, well, maybe they're Greek Catholic, which is like a small subsect of Christians in that country. But if that's the case, they're serving a current population that's about 9% of Ukrainians. The majority of Ukrainian Christians identify as Orthodox Christians, which is basically the majority denomination in what we think of as Eastern Europe. Again, okay, that tracks. And the various Orthodox communities around the world have nuns along with monks. But the nuns of Dark Waters aren't dressed in what we would typically call traditional Orthodox dress. I'm going to go on a limb here and say that the screenwriters for this film, uh, director Mariano Beno and co-writer Andy Bark, uh, didn't do a bunch of research on the Orthodox Church and its traditions. And I sometimes wonder if the majority of horror movies seem to use Catholicism as like a default Christianity for a couple of reasons. One, I think that the Catholic Church is immediately identifiable in a visual sense. Priests look like priests, you know, it's the collar, it's a dead giveaway. And they have a long history of dramatic rites and liturgy. For quote-unquote Western audiences, this serves as a sort of like cinematic shorthand. But the second reason that immediately came to mind for me is The Exorcist. And I don't need to describe, summarize, or really even talk about The Exorcist in any sense, really. It's arguably one of the best known and most talked about horror films in history. But I think the world of horror media sort of like lives in the shadow of The Exorcist, and that's to its own detriment. There's a good chance that everyone in our audience has seen it. Hell, there's a good chance that most non-horror fans have seen The Exorcist. But I think that Dark Waters and many other films suffer because of this. I would have liked to have seen the convent in the film portray like actual orthodoxy in a convent. It would have felt, I don't know, more authentic somehow maybe. And I don't want to try to appropriate orthodox imagery just for the sake of it being like exotic for most filmgoers. 
One could make a pretty credible argument that Dark Waters is well into that weird, weird subgenre of nunsploitation. Food for thought. And I don't think there's too much of a bigger conversation to be had around that point. I don't know that there's too many people in our audience who are really big nunsploitation heads, you know? Can I make a suggestion? Sure. Dear Jordan Peele, I want a scary adaptation of everything that happened in both Sister Act films. Why did I let you do that? <laughs> what was I th I had... To, I don't know why I didn't see that coming. It's the obvious choice, right? We, we've been talking about horror movie remakes and how we're going to spend time with those more often. We're not spending time with, with, with a spooky uh, Sister Act film. We're not doing that. Just I'm think sorry. about it. She, you know, she calls everybody in. You know, Not everybody wants to sing, but she's going to make them sing. Joe, you're sober. There's no excuse for this. I know, right? <laughs> so as I fell into the many headed ideas of this film, I started thinking about how this film feels like a weird variation on a haunted house film. In the world of horror, we find plenty of movies based on the ideas of haunted locales, and the idea of religious horror, quote-unquote, seems to have a lot of clout, especially nowadays. Uh, for instance, Gareth Evans' Apostle seems to be perennially streaming on Netflix, and it's a really good example of this idea. It's a folk horror, yeah, sure, but it's more of a religious horror specifically, and it kind of reminds me of Dark Waters in that way. Plot-wise, you know, there's a bunch of crossovers. And I think you could pretty credibly call Apostle a, you know, a folk horror and a religious horror. But yeah, but that's really splitting hairs after a while. And before I forget, man, if you've never seen Apostle, log on to Netflix after this exorcist. After this exorcist. <laughs> I'm just going to start this whole paragraph over because I... Yeah. Okay. Please tell me we can cut in some additional audio here of you doing the exorcist voice and interrupting yourself. <laughs> Once it, I'm done with this exorcism, uh, we're going to get back to the Fright Lab. It's a beautiful day for an exorcism, isn't it, Father Karras? Lucas, I think Experiment 379 um, is out of the cell again. <laughs> we're like the world's worst SCP Foundation employees. Oh my god. Okay, so now let's that's a movie I want to see. Dear Jordan Peele, can I get a semi-comedic take on the SCP Foundation? So let's let's start this paragraph over, shall we? 096, don't look at him. Why? What's he going to do? Trust me, dude. You just, don't want to look at him. Just don't look. Okay. As I fell into the many-headed ideas of this film, I started thinking about how this film feels like a weird variation on a haunted house movie. In the world of horror, we find plenty of movies based on the ideas of haunted locales, and the idea of religious horror seems to have a lot of clout, especially nowadays. Uh, Gareth Evans' Apostle, which seems to be like perennially streaming on Netflix, is a really good example of this idea, and it kind of reminds me of Dark Waters in a way. Plot-wise, there's a bunch of crossovers, and I think you could pretty credibly call Apostle a folk horror more than a religious film, or I don't know, maybe even I'm wrong. Maybe it's a religious horror and not so much a folk horror, but yeah, that's splitting hairs right about now. And before I forget, man, if you've never seen Apostle, log on to Netflix after this episode and give it a watch. The acting is really good and the action in it is spectacular. Uh, Gareth Evans is probably best known to, for directing the Raid films, uh, The Raid Redemption and The Raid Barandal. Uh, and those are some of my favorite action flicks of all time. So, yeah, right. Apostle. Check it out. Uh, where was I? 
Right. Uh, when it comes to movies about haunted religious sites, I honestly had to struggle to find anything really interesting. You'd think that there would be more, but I, I, I couldn't find much. Outside of the U.S., there seems to be some interest in playing with this concept a bit. There's a 2017 Japanese-American co-production called Temple, which is about a haunted shrine in the mountains of Japan. Uh, I didn't like really care for the movie that much, but it has a really interesting atmosphere. Uh, there's another Japanese film from 2020 called The Day of Destruction. Fascinating little flick, bit of a puzzle box, uh, centering on a monster in a coal mine and a religious devotee at a shrine where craziness occurs. Um, I couldn't find if this was like a Shinto shrine or like a Shingon Buddhist temple. Either way, uh, it was deeply rooted in Japanese symbolism and culture. So if you have an interest in that sort of thing, check out The Day of Destruction. So all of this is to say, I had a hard time finding many English language films about haunted churches and the like, which is frankly pretty surprising to me. Haunted spaces are the bread and butter of so much horror media and folklore. There's plenty of room for a haunted church or convent or rectory, right? Technically, the prequels to The Exorcist could count, but you really gotta want to watch those. They aren't terrible, but yeah, they're just not for everybody, I guess. And again, you might want to check out Carpenter's The Prince of Darkness, and that could be a haunted church movie, sort of. Uh, Ken Russell's The Devils is sort of a haunted convent movie, but it's less that the convent is like actually haunted, and more that the nuns are so deeply sexually repressed that they sort of freak out and act bewitched, as well as you know just being disturbingly horny. Uh. So color me more than a little annoyed that I couldn't make too many recommendations for haunted church movies. If there is a positive takeaway for this, I, I guess it's that you should go watch John Carpenter's The Prince of Darkness. It, it really is a good movie. I think it's easier to make that haunted, insert name of religious temple movie, if you go the medieval route where you have like the Spanish Inquisition or insert the monks of insert the place, or anything Knights Templar, whatever you want to do. Because those are the people that, I don't think everyone associates them with a strong religious heart. And I'm going to say that very plainly, because I don't have a better word for it or a better explanation. I think the idea of a haunted church is just something most people don't want to do because it's hard to buy into that when there's really no real world religious explanation for the church being haunted. That's considered like a sacred place, right? So why would it be haunted? Why would the people inside the church be not as strong in their faith to allow such a thing to occur and still exist over time? Like when you talk about like this film, or you mentioned the Prince of Darkness several times, we're talking about people that are men and women of the cloth who are kind of on the edge of, I'm doing this, but I'm not really confident that, I'm not really confident that God has my back. Well, we'll touch on that a bit more here in a bit, because it's something I've, I've actually been thinking about as it relates to, uh, as it relates to like religious horror. But, you know, there is an interesting point there. I, I think part of the reason I like the idea of haunted church, haunted temple, whatever movies is that there's something about those places that are supposed to feel as places of sanctuary. You know, you know, when you uh, living in St. Louis, 
there are so many just these massive ornate churches that you can go into and they're very peaceful. You know, they're very beautiful. They're very quiet. They're often dimly lit. You know, if you live a busy lifestyle or have a busy profession, it can be a place to just go take a deep breath and relax. So the idea that a place that's supposed to be a place of comfort and worship and and uh, safety and respite being not <laughs> being, being not that being a place where all the bad stuff is going to happen. I, I think that works really well on a horror level. So, Joe, there's a final question I want to pose tonight. And that question is, why is folk horror so fucking weird all the time? One of the reasons that I think folk horror is only now getting its due is the availability of horror to mass audiences and the democratization that it causes. Services such as Shudder are going to allow people to see more of the uh, nooks and crannies of the horror of horror as a genre and to get very specific with their interests. I sincerely doubt that the aforementioned Thai folk horror film The Medium would have gotten any play in the U.S. without services like Shudder. It's too niche, too far removed from what mainstream audiences seem to want to pay for, and maybe on some level that process of of, uh, democratization is actually pulling people from the mainstream and creating a deeper current for filmgoers to play in. And thus, folk horror gets to flourish and mutate it's no longer confined to the wilderness where it first sprang up and the exposure of modern audiences, you know, having to deal with folk horror outside of a strictly like American or English speaking world is going to lead people, pardon the pun, farther afield. And while I think that's a good thing, I don't think that helps us answer any real question about why folk horror ends up being so strange, you know? I I, I think I've said (laughs) it on this show before that modern people are seemingly uh, increasingly removed from folklore and religion on the whole. But I did some digging because I wanted to know, do the numbers actually bear that out? Well, it seems that I'm a little incorrect here. According to the Pew Research Center, Uh, The last century has seen a massive increase in the number of professing Catholics worldwide. In 1910, there was an estimated 291 million Catholics worldwide. Century later, as of 2010, that number has jumped up to approximately 1.1 billion Catholics worldwide. But in the same article, it's pointed out that the world population has also grown substantially in that century and that the distribution of Catholics worldwide has changed as well. But the Catholic News Agency published an article in May of 2021 saying that the actual membership of specific churches has declined around 20% in the last two decades. So what does that mean? I have no clue. I am not an expert and shouldn't be attempting to discern like (laughs) statistical trends of of Catholic belief in church membership. And of course, that's just Catholicism amongst the entire global population. That says nothing of Protestant, Evangelical, or Orthodox Christians. And that also doesn't include any conversations about the global populations of Buddhist, Jain, Hindu, Muslim, or Jewish populations either. Moreover, there appears to be a pretty massive decline in religious identification in the United States. A 2021 Pew Research article indicates that roughly 29% of Americans say that they have no religious affiliation whatsoever, and that only 63% of Americans identify as some sort of Christian, 
a marked decline from the 78% of Americans identifying themselves as Christians in 2007. I'm going to include links to those three articles uh, in the show notes, as I think they could be a great place for you to do some cursory readings on the subject. Why is folk horror so weird? Because it's the easiest way for a culture, a person, a country to talk about their favorite boogeyman. Doesn't matter what it is. Nobody can create the boogeyman better than the guy who's been telling stories for years. And more and more, I think people are dialed into the line between reality and entertainment. And at least right now, they're more interested in creative endeavors. They're more interested in someone creating something instead of hearing what they've been told their whole lives. There's a reason why The Exorcist is so scary. It's not just about a girl who's possessed by the devil or the demon Pazuzu. Let's let's call him by name, shall we? Um, it gives us power. Uh, <laughs> it's not just about that. It's about everybody who went to church and was raised in the majority rule, of course, here, the Catholic Church in the early 1900s, right? It's really a film that's designed to scare your mom and dad. <laughs> Fast you know, forward. Yeah. Society is changing. Social media has done some bad things and some good things. And I think the most interesting thing, I can talk about my niece and her generation. You'd think, here's a generation of kids that don't understand that what you put on the internet lives forever. And more and more, you're getting people signing out. Less and less putting themselves out there because they don't want to be in front of everyone's faces. They don't want every detail of their lives out there for somebody just to find. They don't want to be part of an algorithm. They don't want to be part of the social media data gathering that's occurring. So I don't think, and this is my hypothesis, I don't think people are less religious. I think less people are willing to answer the question when the dude at the mall asks you to fill out a survey. You know, that, that man, that's an interesting point, and I hadn't considered that. I also think there's kind of a value, like, why did podcasts get so popular? I remember uh, first getting iTunes on a computer early 2000s, maybe 2005, and podcasts back then were just music. It was just like kind of like weird DJing is the only way I can explain it. It was, you know, it was pretty interesting. But one of the things that I find so, uh, I don't know, fascinating is that, you know, podcasts are such a wildly popular form of news gathering and entertainment and the like. And I think part of it is that people like having, like, like having a story read to them. You know, they, they, a good storytelling is ancient. It's an ancient feeling that I think all of us for whatever reason have. And as for the religion thing, you know, I, I how to put this uh, just delicately, you know, you shouldn't be turning to like a horror podcaster like me for any sort of educated opinion on world religions at all. <laughs> I, 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 I want to put some like educational content into the world with my blood and guts content as well. You know, they say a little sugar helps the medicine go down, right? Well, maybe a little bit of sugar helps the viscera go down. Uh, and it would be pretty silly to ignore the influence of a region's religious practices on the horror media creators we're following. You know, Mariano Beno, uh, in this case, I, 
this is a guess, and I could be completely wrong, but he was surrounded by Catholicism being an Italian guy, and that's why there are Catholic nuns engaged in evil practices in this movie. He knew something of the faith, I guess, and we know something about the faith, so we see a movie like Dark Waters and we say, well, that's freaky, that's scary, and maybe that's all like just folk horror. A thing you know, being perverted, and a thing you don't know, altering the metaphysics of your world. Joe, am I making any sense here? How do you solve a problem like Maria? You get a big knife. You know, again, pardon the pun, but you go for another deep cut there, man. <laughs> You're making sense. I, I think folk horror is this fun thing that we think about as it should be the evil dead, right? It should be Cabin in the Woods. It should be Eyes of Fire, where it's the scary side of all those mountain man stories that were told to us in the 50s and the 60s and even going back to the beginning of television. I think I actually mentioned that on the Eyes of Fire episode. Yeah. Fast forward to everything post-Exorcist, filmmakers are not afraid to scare people with religion. I think devout religious people are some of the most vocal individuals and groups when it comes to someone making a film that challenges their dogma and I promise that was not an intentional choice of words I think that it's easy to scare someone with the boogeyman that they've been hearing about their whole lives it's not so easy to reduce the religious figures down to someone who's not so powerful that's more scary. Well, another thing that I think is interesting is I don't think we're ever going to outdo superstition, right? Like, I don't think we're ever going to be rid of it. So um, I don't like to talk a lot about my private life, um, you know, on the show, but this is kind of a, a harmless thing. Um, when I'm not podcasting and the weather allows, I am an avid hiker. I enjoy hiking. And I think it's funny. And I've, I've talked to other hikers about this. I think it's funny that you can take the most like dogmatic materialist atheist type and let them turn them into a hiker for like six or eight months. And they'll all tell you on some level that when you're out there in the woods, when you're out deep on a trail, it feels sometimes like the woods are haunted, you know, and maybe it's just, you know, maybe it's just your nerves reacting to being in a strange place. Maybe you are being watched by deer and other animals. So maybe that explains the feeling or maybe we all just believe that there's evil shit in the woods. I, I think that may be just a very deep old human thing. And even, you know, I've never been in any real danger while hiking. I've never really been worried about any of the trails I've been on. How do you know? Well, you don't. And <laughs> I, I, my assumption, because I want my world to be both demon haunted and hilarious is to assume that there's evil shit in the woods. It, it, if nothing else, it adds a little spice to the dish, right? I think the scientists in the audience would say that is your reptilian brain kicking in and defending itself and being prepared for the evil thing to come out because you're by yourself and you're probably under-equipped to have a really serious confrontation. Maybe that's the case. Man, and you know what? That's probably entirely right. You want to know what's a funnier explanation? Demons. I think that's the most quiet I've heard Joe in a long time. <laughs> so with that said, that's going to do it for us tonight. We thank you all so much for tuning in. And as always, we want to know, what do you think? 
Why is folk horror always so strange? And what's a good movie about a haunted religious site that we don't know about? And finally, should Joe violently stop me from watching so many goddamn folk horror movies? You know what's funnier than demons? Mm, what's that? The Village. Yeah, we'll just move on. <laughs> Let us know by emailing us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to give us a follow on the swirling nightmare vortex that is Twitter, follow us at fright underscore lab underscore pod or find us at fright lab pod on Letterboxd. Uh, I periodically will upload short reviews of movies I'm working on there. I, I think it's pretty fun. Uh, would you do us all a favor? Fans, friends, listeners? Five-star reviews help others see our work. And if you want more people to join in on the fun we're all having, they need to leave reviews. You need to leave reviews. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, Google, or any other platform that allows you to leave a rating and a review, please help us by leaving a five-star review and a nice comment. Tell us what nice boys we are. Joe, would you care to tell our spooky, haunted congregation here where else they might find your work? Shout out to the Nerf Herder Council, nhcpodcast.com. I have been hanging out with a really awesome guy named AJ, and we've been talking about some Star Trek-related things, so you should keep your eyes open on everything they are talking about. They talk about all the nerdy things. It's literally a council of Nerf Herders. Yes, they started talking about Star Wars, but they talk about a lot of stuff, and I really think it's a cool place to hang out, and I'm going to be hanging out with AJ a lot more often. Um... If you are a fan of heavy metal music and you enjoy listening to the most extreme bands, everything from Judas Priest and their extreme high notes to um, Cannibal Corpse and their extreme imagery and insert name of doom and gloom bands, if you love that sort of music, I got to tell you, I enjoy that sort of music and i want to welcome you to listen to all the podcasts that we are creating at discussmetal.com we talk about your favorite bands my favorite bands heavy metal subjects and we've been doing it for a long time you heard lucas say it the fright lab podcast at gmail.com leave us a five-star review in whatever your platform of choice is if you're listening on your phone right now just just take it out of your pocket just reach in there pull it out okay I want you to scroll to the left, scroll to the right. You see, you see where the you see where the button is, the thumbs up, the thumbs down, whatever you want to say. Leave that comment. So we want to hear from you guys. Also, one last thing. Uh, if you are an independent artist and you are doing some ooky spooky music, you're doing some weird next level dark ambient, or you're doing some insane horror punk or whatever, horror and horror adjacent creators, we want to hear from you. We want to know about your music. We want to know about your podcast or whatever you're working on. We all, the whole field gets better when we're all working together on this stuff. So let us know. We will happily plug your work and or play some of it on the show. And as always, The Fright Lab is written and researched by me, Lucas Yoakum. It is also co-hosted, engineered, and beaten into a listenable shape by Mr. Joseph Wren. We appreciate everyone for tuning in, and we will talk to you very soon. Well done, sir. Fuck me, that turned out really well. Didn't it? That episode should not have worked. <laughs> that, that episode should not be 50 minutes of audio, but it is. Oh, God. 5-0. Fan-fucking-tastic. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to The Fright Lab. For all of your scary sounds, please check out Bandcamp and whatever f face put up there. <laughs> I, I really do now want to start a band called f Face. There's got to be a band called f
face already. All right, let's let's look this up in real time, shall we? <laughs> Before I hit the stop button, because now it might be you know worth putting on the show. Um, Bandcamp. <laughs> uh, excuse me while I search for a uh, face. <laughs> There's a sentence I've never heard before. <laughs>